Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We absolutely need to get better at sharing this stuff that is not, in many cases, classified. It is restricted for the wrong reasons. And we need a cultural mindset, which is AUKUS is a sacred cow and the rules that apply elsewhere don't apply to AUKUS countries because this is a top-tier partnership. If we can't get this right with uh, the US as a non-industrial competitor, then, you know, what are the potential chances of doing so with someone like Japan or Korea? You're listening to the National Security Podcast the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm David Andrews. I'd like to acknowledge that we're recording on the land of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Today, I'm joined by two leading Australian experts to discuss pillar two of the AUKUS partnership between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Dr. Mia Hamanderi is the Director of the Emerging Technology Program at the United States City Centre at the University of Sydney, and Ashley Townsend is a Senior Fellow for Indo-Pacific Security at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thanks, David. Great to be here. As I said in the introduction, and as it would sort of get into it nice and promptly, um, we need to talk about Pillar 2 of AUKUS. Uh, it's obviously the, the most high-profile aspect of the AUKUS agreement is Australia's planned acquisition of nuclear-powered submarines, um, which is generally referred to as Pillar 1 of the agreement. Um, however, there's actually a second stream of effort, which has gone a little bit under the radar to date, and that's referred to as Pillar 2 of AUKUS. Um, so perhaps starting with you, Mia, would you be able to explain for our audience um, what this Pillar 2 label refers to? What kind of projects are underway or proposed under the auspices of Pillar 2? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you alluded to, not as much is known about Pillar 2. And when it was announced in September 2021, it had six streams of what are known as advanced capabilities. So they were listed as quantum, artificial intelligence or AI, cyber, undersea, hypersonics and electronic warfare. Then in April 2022, the implementation briefing, sorry, expanded that out to include innovation and information sharing. So the innovation component was accelerating respective defence innovation enterprises, including ways to more rapidly integrate commercial tech to solving specific warfighting needs and information sharing as a first priority, so enabling the other work streams um, to underpin the work of advanced capabilities. I mean, the short answer to this is that it's still a watch this space and there's a lot of progress kind of slated for 2023. Um, I think dis- despite widespread agreement about the significance of Pillar 2, really very little is actually known. Um, you know, on the one hand, many of the capabilities are likely to remain secret due to their national security role. So we're not expecting regular or detailed updates, but 
On the other hand, um, you know, the stated goal is to trilaterally develop capability and engage with defence industry and academic partners. And I think to date we've seen, I guess, fairly limited signs of that engagement. Um, in terms of the, you know, the specific progress to date and the innovation front, the Albanese government promised to create the Australian Strategic Research Agency, or ASRA, um, to be modelled on US's DARPA. The UK now has the Advanced Research and Invention Agency, or ARIA, which has been established and is in the early stages of formation. I think they're still recruiting many positions. Um, I note the uh, initial ASRA consultations with academia and industry are underway from the Office of the Chief Defence Scientist. Um, And the December 2022 uh, AUKUS Defence Ministerial Joint Statement provided an update uh, that was really largely reaffirming existing commitments uh, and endorsing efforts to, I think they use the term, orient capability development to accelerate near-term delivery of technologies. So what that really looks like, I think, is that many things are still kind of in progress and we're expecting to see more uh, and, as they put it, intensifying engagement in calendar year 2023. Thanks very much for that. Um, Is there anything you'd like to add, Ash? Does that sort of align with your read on the situation as well? I think that's a a great overview and to shift a little bit to looking at the strategic and defence policy objectives when it comes to AUKUS Pillar 2. I'd make the the following point. First, um, one of the reasons, I think, for the um, slower than ideal progress on um, um, developing um, co-development programs and work streams around the capability areas that Mia just outlined is because when AUKUS Pillar 2 was announced, it was not clear that all parties had exactly the same idea about what we wanted to get out of that um, that line of effort. Um, for instance, from an Australian perspective, I think it's fairly clear that the Australian government and the Department of Defence specifically wants to drive um, um, capabilities of an advanced variety to the warfighter as quickly as possible. These are things like longer range strike capabilities in the form of hypersonics, um, other underwater capabilities that are autonomous can supplement um, the Pillar 1 submarine program and supplement our existing Collins class fleet, um, the integration of artificial intelligence into warfighting systems, combat systems, and so forth. These are the kinds of capabilities that could give Australia an asymmetric uh, edge or the kind of asymmetric deterrence capabilities, among others, um, that the 2020 Defence Strategic Update outlined a secondary objective for Australia is to um, build out a trilateral defence industrial and technological base with the United Kingdom and the United States so as to set in place the conditions for the development of, um, um, of R&D partnerships that are seamless, and we'll talk about this later, but are not encumbered by restrictions with those two countries or future capability development. So in a, in a sense, we're talking about a need to drive capability to the warfighter in the zero to five year horizon and a need to reform the system of doing business with the Americans and the British for the future and for the maintenance of, of that pipeline of advanced capability going forward. So that's what Australia saw in Pillar 1, in Pillar 2 rather, but from the US and the British perspective, it did look a little different. From the British perspective, there was a lot more focus on the need to find 
um, areas where British industry and British um, defence industry is very competitive globally could find projects of record to sell to the Australians and the Americans and, and co-develop with them as well. But it was much more of an industrial policy focus. And from the perspective of the United States, I think although Pillar 2 objectives were initially quite diffuse, it seemed to be more about finding ways to hoover up the um, niche um, advanced capability and R&D competencies that Australia and the UK had on offer and find ways to get them into the US defence industrial base more efficiently and more quickly than in the past, uh, although that's aligned closely with Australia's secondary objective in terms of the way I outlined them, not in terms of their priority, um, the immediate need to drive capability from trilateral capability development to the warfighter from the US perspective was not front and centre because the US defence industrial base is already doing that in its own way. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And I would just uh, kind of jump on the back of that and add that I think the, the need to bring together the three countries defence industrial bases and work together more clearly, identifying, you know, sovereign and existing capabilities and then the the potential to leverage new capabilities is really why information and technology sharing and that focus on innovation hubs, if you like, was brought on. And I I think that's exactly right. And just to add a a point on the back of that, um, one of the important things to remember um, when we're looking at AUKUS Pillar 2 collaboration in this area is that this is one vehicle amongst many others that are out there. Um, The UK, Australia, and the United States are all Five Eyes intelligence partners. They have the potential, with the right conditions in place, to also be exquisite sharers of of classified (coughs) non-defence, sorry, of unclassified non-defence technology and of classified defence technology if we can get the AUKUS um, settings right. Um, But... These are by no means the only avenues for any of the three AUKUS countries to pursue hypersonics development or the um, development with other countries of autonomous capabilities. We are doing these with other countries as well. AUKUS provides one pathway to do that at a high level of trust and confidence in information sharing if that is what is designed, Um, but there will be other lines of effort as well particularly with the Japanese, with some European partners, and potentially leveraging the heft of India's um, emerging defence and technological industrial base. Yeah, and I think it'll be really interesting to see how, um, you know, Pillar 2 develops in the context, as you've just mentioned, the existing alliances and security packs in the region, but then also the mechanisms, you know, the, the new US national security and defence strategies, the forthcoming Australian Defence Strategic Review, um, you know, and, and UK's kind of global vis- Britain vision and how, how these might fit in both as existing alliances, but what AUKUS Pillar 2 might bring uniquely in that context. So I think that's a really uh, fantastic overview, both of Pillar 2, but also addresses why it matters for Australia and, and what it means for Australia. Because I think most people who, even as non-specialists, can grasp the importance or utility of a, of a submarine. Um, and some of the things in Pillar 2 can be, I think, somewhat... Uh, can seem a bit esoteric sometimes or a bit intangible. And so I think that's been a really great way of contextualising um, for our listeners and helping them understand why there is this parallel pillar two set of efforts in such a wide range of fields and, and what, um, what the objectives are. And however, 
just because we have um, great goals and great aims doesn't mean they're always going to succeed or, or run smoothly along the way. Um, and so there are many complex challenges ahead in um, realizing the objectives of AUKUS. I mean, perhaps especially in Pillar 1, given the uh, complications regarding nuclear physics and engineering, but that doesn't mean it's all smooth sailing in Pillar 2 time. So apart from the complexity in developing new cutting-edge capabilities, uh, a big issue that's present in all technology transfer or military acquisition programs is that of export controls. And in this case, especially uh, the United States' International Traffic and Arms Regulations, or ITAR. And uh, actually, I know this is something you've talked about before in, in other contexts, but um, and, and has also been discussed recently in the news by members of the US Congress in relation to AUKUS specifically. But uh, would you say that these regulations are fit for purpose? Are they, um, do we need to seek um, sort of waivers or reforms to them to make sure that, that AUKUS can succeed? No, the current export control regime in the United States is antiquated. It is not fit for purpose in an era of strategic competition, and it is certainly ill-equipped to implement the vision that is infused within the AUKUS Pillar 2, but also Pillar 1 objectives. And without changes in the way that the United States engages with and provides carve-outs and waivers for their engagement with Australia and the United Kingdom, AUKUS will limp along and not meet its objectives. This couldn't be a more important mission for the Working Group on Information Sharing, which works across both pillars, to get right. Just to rewind for a second, the United States um, export control regime for, um, uh, as we know it, and the ITAR restrictions themselves were established in the 1970s. The United States was at the peak of its global um, um, uh, technological prominence. It was by far and away the biggest spender on um, defense-oriented research and development, the most sophisticated technological power. It was at the peak of the Cold War as well, and the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union for technological prominence was also in its prime. The aim of ITAR restrictions um, was to limit the leakage of U.S. exquisite technological uh, know-how, and particularly as it pertains to um, weapons globally, including to allies and partners, without a high degree, you know, where there wasn't a high degree of confidence that that information would be protected in order to maintain America's technological edge. But fast forward to the present, that mission, which made sense in the 1970s, makes no sense today, where the United States is one of many players on the um, global innovation game when it comes to R&D generally, when it comes to defense-oriented R&D and innovation. The United States government no longer has a stranglehold on this. It's the corporate sector. It's Silicon Valley. It's the rest of the United States non-government ecosystem that is driving the, the advanced agenda. And allies like the United Kingdom, others in Europe, Australia, Japan, India, and so on, all have a lot of niche high-end uh, technology innovation, including um, increasingly, even for Australia, um, capability platforms themselves, like um, the Andrew XLAUV underwater autonomous vehicle or the um, uh, Boeing-developed Ghostbat um, autonomous um, air teaming system that are things the United States military 
can and want to use and things the United States industry want to integrate in their defense industrial base. So the ATA restrictions that prevent that from happening in a seamless way are a problem for strategic competition in the 21st century. The efforts by the AUKUS working groups to um, negotiate a way for the three countries to share um, uh, and work together in innovation and co-development to not be restrained by restrictions on retransfers and re-export authorities when a country like Australia wants to um, work with another partner country or another part of our domestic ecosystem on a co-developed capability or a bought capability from the United States uh, and so on and so forth. The efforts that AUKUS is is, is, is proceeding to try and drive change in that agenda are encountering a lot of friction in the US system, friction particularly from the part of the US system um, in the State Department that is responsible for um, um, upholding that export control regime globally and which is not yet convinced that there is a need for major change to the existing um, Defence Te- um, Technology Cooperation Treaties between the United States and Britain and Australia, respectively, which already provide for some degree of, uh, of waivers when it comes to export controls. Um, this is not the first bite at the cherry. Um, the 2017 um, expansion of the United States National Technological and Industrial Base, which brought Britain and Australia in ostensibly into the United States, um, own definition of its defence technological industrial base was designed by Congress to provide a pathway for Britain and Australia to be treated much more like the United States when it comes to defence industrial collaboration. That has not happened. The State Department's, the Congress's progress to date in implementing that arrangement has really come to close to zero beyond the harmonisation of information protection regimes amongst those three countries has really come to zero when it when it require um, when it comes to the issue of um, uh, providing further exemptions that are wider and more expansive than what is already provided for in those treaties and which have lower transaction costs because the paperwork associated with bringing to life the exemptions that are already granted in the two defence cooperation treaties are prohibitive for much of the Australian industry and even parts of the Australian government. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with a path forward now to convince the United States um, and the right actors in the State Department and in Congress that further reform is needed to lift the restrictions on countries like Australia and Britain, who are their partners in innovating for a strategic military edge in the 21st century. And to do that in a time frame while the political momentum and support for AUKUS in the White House and in Capitol Hill in the United States is still high enough to drive the kind of bureaucratic reform that's needed. Yeah, Ash, I'd, I'd, I'd just add to that. I mean, you, you're talking there about the premise, um, you know, of ITAR essentially being tech dominance in, in the US. And I think one of the things that Pillar 2 uh, has, which really separates it from sort of the traditional, if you like, um, defence industrial race, is that while some of uh, the advanced capabilities, you know, like hypersonics and much of undersea and electronic warfare sit really neatly in the defence bag, as you mentioned, cyber, quantum and AI particularly, uh, you know, the the challenges here is that the technical expertise and technologies of these capabilities reside in a, in a diffuse set of largely commercial enterprises. Um, and this, tech, this um, regulatory framework is 
really really needs kind of a rethink in terms of when you're looking at an alliance like this, collective resilience requires collective exchange. And it's really a different era and a different threat environment to be considering exchange on a more equal basis rather than on the presumption of individual technology dominance. Um, And specifically that many of those, um, you know, advanced capabilities, I think of areas in quantum areas in undersea and artificial intelligence where Australia does have a niche uh, and quite bespoke area of excellence. So we actually have technology that the US might like. So that exchange needs to be two-way, whereas I think it's previously, you know, largely be con- been considered in a one-way context, which you mentioned. And I know you've done so much work on this um, at the centre as well as in other places. No, I couldn't agree more with that, Mia. And, and just to add, um, you know, one um, footnote to what you just said, so much of the technologies that are restricted either by the Department of Commerce um, or in some cases even by the State Department that are commercially oriented are already out there. They've already leaked to um, US adversaries globally. In many cases, China itself has developed um, better versions of that technology and is leading the United States in some of these areas. So the entire notion that um, that the United States ought to continue to uphold a set of internally um, manda- uh, internally um, derived constraints on sharing uh, commercial and military technologies with close allies like Australia that are at the, sa- in, in, you know, at the same time moving further and faster to integrate with the United States to the point that we are hosting US strategic bombers on Australian soil and talking about the extent to which we will support U.S. warfighting operations in the Indo-Pacific is is quite bizarre. It's grating, and I think increasingly it's becoming a problem for the way that the U.S. and Australia can achieve their regional strategic objectives if we are spending so much of our time arguing over the details of sharing, in many instances, legacy technology with an ally at low compliance costs so that we can be empowered and be a better ally, a more capable ally in the region, and ideally a second source of supply and an additional source of defence um, industrial innovation and technological innovation for the benefit of the trilateral that is AUKUS. If I might just add uh, a little sort of postscript, um, in, in a previous life uh, I worked in Defence Export Controls in the Australian Department of Defence, which is the Australian uh, touchpoint for, for these sort of issues. And one of the benefits, I suppose, is that we had a a single point of contact being through the Defence Department. The UK has the Export Control Joint Unit, which is housed in their Trade Department, but it brings together people from the Foreign Office and Defence as well. But I think as you both touched on in your, in your remarks there, that it's not just that these uh, diffuse technologies around uh, around private industry, but there's a diffuse range of uh, US departments and, and points of contact from within their system, which can complicate and drag out the process, whether it's state, defence, commerce or energy. And so sometimes you can be waiting uh, years to, to get approval to export these goods. And as you said earlier, actually, if we're looking at technology which can be delivered in the next sort of one to five years, then a one to two year ITAR delay um, means that those, those lack um, validity in some ways. I was just going to say, I don't think this problem is um, unique to defence, though. I mean, emerging technologies have, to use an overused 
term, disrupted so many industries and existing legislative frameworks. So I think one of the challenges is that many of these um, capabilities are actually changing legislative frameworks across the board. So when you're proposing new um, you know, legislation or regulation, you have to be conscious that that's coming at government from every angle, not just in this case defence, but also, you know, in, in terms of privacy, in terms of the workforce, in terms of security, social harms. And so, you know, decision makers are also overwhelmed with a very, very large, broad uh, set of emerging technologies changing their landscape. And that makes it quite difficult to get the noise, to get through the noise and to get heard. That's exactly right. And I think one of the, the points um, that is often raised when talking about the barriers to doing better um, in US-Australia defence industrial cooperation is a cultural mindset, particularly in the United States, which is, exists across the system um, in, in the departments, David, that you mentioned, um, which is to not share with even close allies and partners like Australia. At the end of the day, the desk officer in charge of, 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 of approving the reams of requests from US allies and partners globally, and there aren't enough of these desk officers, um, is responsible under ITAR for making the right or wrong decision and can be personally held accountable for making the wrong decision. So one of the objectives, I think, that exists behind AUKUS is to make it easier culturally, bureaucratically for that individual to know that when it comes to an AUKUS country, the default settings really is a yes, we'll share and yes, we'll fast track rather than a no, I need to cover my bacon so that I'm not going to put myself out of step with my department, these antiquated settings and the legal requirements that I'm duty bound to follow. Let's underscore the fact these requirements are critical. The United States should still be hypersensitive about sharing um, and diffusing technological know-how um, uh, negligently globally to countries that oughtn't have them to countries that are hostile to our interests. But when it comes to the AUKUS countries, I think the point that London and Canberra are making is that we do everything together. We work on the most exquisite platforms together from the F-35 to the Pillar 1 nuclear-powered submarine. We absolutely need to get better at sharing this stuff that is not in many cases classified is restricted for the wrong reasons and we need a cultural mindset across commerce state the department of defense which is AUKUS is a um is a is a sacred cow and it, the rules that apply elsewhere don't apply to AUKUS countries because this is a top tier partnership um i'll just make one word of one sort of observation of encouraging progress um if you look at the u.s system Although there are different parts, even of the Department of Defense, that are responsible for ticking off different de defense industrial cooperation programs, broadly speaking, the DOD in the United States has really come on board in their support for Australia and British objectives in more seamless um, information sharing and export sharing uh, between the two countries. Abraham Denmark, who was the special assistant to Secretary Austin in DOD has a very wide mandate to grip up the entire department and get them on the same page when it comes to the AUKUS Pillar 2 and Pillar 1 objectives, but in this case, the export control settings that underpin the two of them. And the progress within DOD in terms of aligning bureaucratic dots has been visible. By contrast, um, the State Department and the Directorate of Defence Trade Controls within the State Department, which currently, as of last year, doesn't even have a director, is responsible for bringing the State Department into line with whatever reform agenda we have. They are the part of the system 
that has to oversee ITAR waivers and the lifting of ITAR restrictions, but they do not have a, if you like, Sherpa within the State Department responsible for this. They need one. They do not have the same kind of cultural mindset that the DoD has. The DoD, which is steeped in close collaboration in war zones with Australia in the way the State Department is not. And so bringing that system together, David, to your point about a single point of contact is really critical if we're going to get AUKUS progress. Yeah, absolutely. Ash, I was just going to add to that that I, you know, I guess to summarise that I, th- I think uh, export controls really have the potential to hold up this integration agenda. And if we can't get this right with uh, the US as a non-industrial uh, competitor, then you know what are the potential chances of doing so with someone like Japan or Korea? We'll be right back. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. One aspect of, of Pillar 2 in particular, which has been discussed both by uh, Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles and in the Quad Leaders' statement of last year uh, about looking at avenues for uh, using Pillar 2 of AUKUS as a means of expanding the group, um, of bringing in other countries, uh, potentially Japan. Um, the US Deputy, Deputy Secretary of State has also flagged New Zealand um, in other remarks. There's other, I suppose, five other countries to varying degrees of technological capability, but Japan is, is the one that's definitely at the top of the list for most people. So um, I'm interested in your um, your sense on whether that's realistic, whether that's wise, or whether that's something that would happen in the short term, or perhaps that's more of an aspirational goal for the future. Yeah, look, I think it makes sense to explore uh, technology collaboration wherever possible. I guess the question here is whether that occurs under the auspices of AUKUS um, specifically Pillar 2 or in another form. Um, I I guess I want to bring in some recent polling here by the United States Studies Centre, and I can get you the link in the show notes. And it underlined increasing popular support for uh, Japan-Australia security ties and trilateral Japan-Australia-US alliance. Significantly large majorities of the US, Australia and Japanese publics at 70% or more support collaborating with allies on issues around around emerging technologies. Across all three nations, only three to six percent express any reservations about collaborating collaborating, sorry, on emerging technologies like AI, quantum and semiconductor manufacturing. So that, that's a huge level of support, obviously. Those questions don't specifically relate to AUKUS. So when we did break down uh, the AUKUS questions, when it comes to the expansion of the AUKUS partnership, 
American support for adding Japan to the agreement was largely bipartisan and sat at about 55%. Australians were greatly supportive of including Japan at 62%, um, a move seen to have potential in addressing gaps regarding defence production capacity in the US, Australia and the UK. Contrarily, uh, Japanese respondents tepidly agree with the notion of expanding AUKUS to include Japan, so 39% agree, 24% did not agree or disagree, and 6% disagree, with almost 30% saying they simply didn't know. So, I mean, in terms of public sentiment, there there seems to be sort of mixed sentiment, but broadly, uh, you know, support for an alliance of some type with less specific support for AUKUS. We are seeing strong signs of uh, that support expanding out, obviously, as you mentioned, specifically in relation to Japan. Um, I think I would note the DPM's, uh, you know, speech in Tokyo in December uh, 2022 where he did say we need to get to a point where AUKUS is delivering um, and when it's delivering I think there's an opportunity to involve Japan. There's clearly a real need for this to work and reducing any blockages like the ITAR issues is going to be key to making any potential uh, broadening of that alliance. I note that uh, up until very recently, whilst there's been discussion of Australia, Japan and US agreement, there's been limited commentary from the UK um, and obviously as a trilateral security agreement, it would need UK support. And a few days ago, the chair of the UK's Defence Select Committee suggested uh, the AUKUS agreement Uh, could expand out to include both India and Japan. Um, I'd like to hear Ash's view on this, but I think there are a number of challenges with with expanding out. As I mentioned, the defence industrial base uh, in Australia is a non-competitor. So from that perspective, um, you know, we're, we're looking very much at leveraging each other's capabilities Given we haven't seen a huge uh, level of progress on Pillar 2 as yet, and uh, there's definitely scope to be made in, uh, you know, industry and academic consultation as well as um, broadening down the working groups and starting to deliver, I know there's some exercises in uh, undersea and quantum, but more broadly than that, I guess, actually delivering those capabilities, you really want to have a successful um, alliance framework to be able to move to expanding the scope of that. Yeah, I I think, Mia, that I agree with, with everything you, you've, you've just laid out there. And, and I'd add a few a few extra comments. I mean, first, I think just going right back, um, the, the broad requirement of US allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific, indeed globally right now, is to find ways to collectively innovate, collectively pull their, their industrial capabilities, their, um, their R&D sectors, their capacity for innovation, but also their capacity for um, collective um, uh, military action in regional theatres in order to um, deter and dissuade the challenges presented to um, uh, those two regional orders in Europe and Asia by competitors Russia and China competitors which themselves are big enough to take on the existing status quo in both of those regions. So that requires a whole range of things, but it's in that context that I think the discussion about defence industrial integration and technological integration 
is required. And indeed, this is an ongoing conversation, as I mentioned before, it goes back to 2017, it goes further back than that even, um, where efforts in the United States to bring Britain and Australia into the US defence industrial base really hit the hit the agenda through the NTIB expansion. Um, so there is a need for, for heft, for bulk, um, for leveraging also the private sectors and incentivizing the private sectors, uh, including um, uh, 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 the venture capital and equity markets in those countries to invest in defense products, to invest in innovation that is can be for export, that can be trilateral in nature and so forth. So in that regard, I am very um, supportive of the agenda of the of the ambition over time to bring others other trusted partners into the AUKUS framework. Having said that, as you say, Mia, the settings, and as the DPM said, AUKUS needs to be delivering before that can happen. I probably wouldn't use the word delivering myself. AUKUS should be delivering um, in an ongoing way. But the, the governance frameworks around export controls, information sharing, co-development, the right to re-export, re-transfer authorities, etc. that whole bundle of issues needs to be resolved amongst the three AUKUS partners currently before we can bring others into the field. And the reason for that is that when we do bring Japan or France or Germany into um, collaboration with the AUKUS 3 on, let's say, a particular capability area under Pillar 2, um, those countries are, all of them, much more likely to be industrial competitors certainly for the United States and Britain, um, and therefore lower the threshold of the appetite in those countries to make it easier for the three AUKUS countries to share it at, at sort of low transaction costs. Bottom line, there is an issue here of aligning the autarkic um, 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 commercial objectives of all of the countries involved with the collective objectives in a strategic policy sense of all of the countries involved, and that balance is very delicate. Um, I do think that AUKUS has done itself a disservice by having such a prominent acronym because it implies that anyone that joins AUKUS is joining this whole bundle of activities when in reality the AUKUS 3 will be the hub of the arrangements. And when it comes to, say, hypersonics, where we might want to work with the Japanese, um, or when it comes to underwater capabilities where we might want to work with the French and so on and so forth, we'll be plugging those countries in once the settings are right on just one or two areas. They're not going to be joining open slather the AUKUS arrangement. And indeed, AUKUS itself, most importantly, it hasn't yet been said in this podcast, is not an alliance. It's not about strategic policy objectives. It's not about any kind of action um, in the Indo-Pacific or anywhere, it is a defence industrial and technological partnership. It is one that is trying to build a new model for that kind of exchange, and it's one that I think needs to welcome in others when the time is right. A final point on that, and that is that when it comes to which countries we bring in and when, I think you do need to look at the different incentives amongst the three AUKUS countries. For the United States, for example, as I mentioned at the beginning, one of their goals is to is to access and use and work with the advanced technologies that are being developed and the innovation ecosystems that exist globally in other trusted countries. So although they may have reservations about, let's say, Japan joining a certain program until Japan's um, information resilience, cyber resilience, um, 
meet certain criteria, and there have been concerns of that nature in the past. They also apply to the RK, they apply to some parts of Europe. Um, they do want to work with the high-end industrial and technological um, 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 uh, sectors in in those partner countries, in those allied countries. Uh, for Australia, again, going back to the most important thing to get out of AUKUS, it is capability in the short term. It is capability for the ADF that can be fielded in the zero to five and an ongoing way of doing business with the Americans and the British to generate that advanced edge in a sustained way over time. It is not clear that Australia's objectives are best served by quickly adding another country to the AUKUS arrangement until those, you know, getting those settings right are more important. At the same time, Australia has its own programs of defence industrial cooperation with Japan, with France, with India, and, and so forth. And indeed, some of those lines of effort may prove over time to be um, to pay dividends more quickly or in different ways than working through the AUKUS arrangement. The nature of the restrictive export control regime in the United States may end up meaning that for a particular capability area, it makes more sense to work with India and the heft that its industrial base can bring at low costs for the development of attributable um, long-range capabilities. It may be that over time it makes sense to partner with Japan, a country that's also highly integrated into U.S. combat systems when it comes to what it develops in ways uh, that can, where we can co-develop um, um, hypersonics or other underwater capabilities with the Japanese more quickly and maybe with less baggage than trying to do it through some of the AUKUS arrangements. And indeed, as we are doing at the moment, we're pursuing multiple lines of efforts in some of these capability areas already. AUKUS has touted um, uh, underwater capabilities as an area of early delivery for Pillar 2 progress. At the same time, the Royal Australian Navy is working with Andrew Technologies to build a low-cost, um, ITAR-free um, XLAUV underwater autonomous submarine, which it hopes to field within two years from now, and which in some ways is in a race with what is being developed in AUKUS in order to, um, to provide an option to government more quickly. It may well be the case that there are options that are coming from multiple places, multiple partnerships, multiple different kinds of institutional arrangements and AUKUS is one of them. So having maintaining a degree of competition from Canberra's perspective across those different defence industrial collaboration lines of effort may prove to be in our advantage over time. It may give us a degree of leverage when it comes to AUKUS negotiations, and it may give us um, a, a, a safer approach that doesn't put all of our eggs in one basket, and I think that's where we are. We're in a safe approach at the moment um, 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 uh, to the development of advanced capabilities the ADF so urgently needs. I think certainly from my perspective as someone who um, uh, is doing a PhD on multilateral security institutions and alliances and these kind of relationships, I think I always default to a you know, walk-before-you-run approach to these kind of arrangements. And I think um, for those reasons you've both explained and, and, and for a whole range more, I think I'm certainly in agreement that there's, there's plenty more to be delivered and to be finalised before we look to uh, bringing in uh, all and sundry into the the, the wider expanded um, uh, sort of AUKUS arrangements. And did you have anything further to add on that point there? 
Um, no, I just wanted to uh, thank Ash for bringing it back to the focus on the, the defence security component. And I, I guess I just wanted to highlight that, like many areas of emerging technolo- technology, um, you know, the, the, the capabilities here are critical to defence, but so many of them are fundamental to broader society. And this is really where sort of many tensions are bubbling up. These these technologies are critical for our digital landscape, for communications, for, you know, weather assessment, for remote sensing, um, functions of civil society. And, and now we're seeing they play a key role in economic and political power of, of states. So we are trying to bring many capabilities that are critical across society more broadly and integrate them into a very complex, um, you know, defence regulatory framework and get some of these technologies in the hands of warfighters. And I think that really will be the success of AUKUS Pillar 2 is managing to establish that framework so we could in the future broaden it out to additional alliances. So thanks for that reminder, Ash. Couldn't agree more. Well, I think that's just about as much time as we have for today. Um, But thank you both very much for your time, for your contributions and your great insights here. Uh, And we hope to work with you at National Security College again in the future. So thank you. Dr. Mia Hamadari and Ashley Townsend. Thanks, David. Thanks very much. Thanks, David. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.